Joy, a phenomenon that transcends our circumstances, a mystery that confounds the enemies. When the world sees despair and doubt, our joy in Christ sings louder and louder, rising above the temporary and embracing the eternal. From prison cell to palace, from dungeon to deliverance, everything pales in comparison to knowing Christ and seeing His beauty. To be content in all things, to have peace in the midst of anxiety, to rejoice in suffering, the impossible made possible through Christ. Oh, to be found in Him, to be called a citizen of heaven, to be made righteous. How could we do anything but rejoice? All right, Trinity Church, how you doing today? I got all kinds of ping in my voice. It's awesome. Just lean in, just lean in. For those of you with hearing impediments, you don't have them now, okay? It's good. Be healed. So we are really glad that you are here today at Trinity. It's great to see you. Great to see you out on the plaza in the pavilion and great for you joining us online. We're really glad that you're a part of this service with us. We're really glad you're here today. My name is Todd Arnett. I'm the lead pastor here at Trinity Church. And uh, a couple things for you as we go into it. You're joining us in a series called Rejoice. You just saw this great bumper video that does a great job of giving you an overview of really this theme that is thick all within this book the idea that God has called us to be a people who recognize the grace that's been given to us and we keep living out of that. It's not based on our circumstances. It's not based on how high of a high we are on or how low of a low, but it's a reality that because our joy is found in what Jesus has accomplished, no one can take it away. And so that's what we're about, and we're really glad you're here today. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, if you want to find your way there. Remember that, go eat popcorn, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. It's in the back, probably three quarters of your Bible, if you want to make your way there. Also in your Trinity this week, I always keep forgetting to bring mine up here with you, but we have some notes. If you want to get those out, that'll help you track with us during the message today, and then those are prompts for your home group notes uh, throughout the week this week. So have those ready and available, and uh, that'll help you a little bit today. Let me tell you about a couple things uh, that are going on. Uh, next Sunday night, we are, as we're beginning our 5.30 service, we're about a month in so far. It's been great. Just great community is happening after those services as well. And so we are doing another after party next Sunday night after the 5.30 service. Would love for you to join us. If you just want to try it out, like what is that whole time slot about? What does that service kind of look like? It's the same service as what we're doing in the mornings, but you'll find a very different culture. And so I'd love for you to uh, take a minute and check that out with us. Part of that is, can I just say this to this nine o'clock service? I love a packed house. Absolutely love it. But can I tell you this? People can't find seats. So if you have an opportunity to go, you know what? I don't have to come at 9. I could come at 1045 or even better. I could come check out that 530 thing. I want to invite you to do so because we need more seats at this service. This is a great problem. I love it. But there's some great opportunities, too, to free up some seats for people, especially who are guests who are trying to find a way in. All right? 
Um, another thing going on for us is that during, throughout this series, we had talked to you related to our social media with Facebook and Instagram about telling us some of your yay God stories related to prayer requests, things that God had answered affirmatively yes, and just you just see the blessing of that, whether that was something a while ago or something right now, we'd love for you to send that to us. It's actually going to help become the basis of a series response service that we're going to do in the end of October. We did one of those, if you were with us back in the spring, for our After This Life series, and we're excited to do one again, and that will be a huge piece of helping kind of lay a foundation for that. So if you have just one of those stories, you're like, hey, we are crying out to God for X, and this is what he did. We just want to celebrate that. You'll note that in our prayer time for our global workers each week throughout this series, we're highlighting what they're grateful to God for as well as needs that they have, but especially making a big deal about what we can praise God together with them. So we're gonna dive in today. This is kind of where we're going. This passage, I was telling our, um, our production team meeting before we got going, I don't know that I really clearly understood what this, the, one of the key areas of this passage was about until this week. And so I wanna help all of us kind of see it through a lens that I think it has seemed always a little out of place when I read the scope of this saved by grace through faith idea that's really all over the New Testament. This passage has something in it that makes you go, but what's that mean? And so I wanna help unpack that today. And that's what we've seen. The book of Philippians has so many big themes in it but what we see threaded through is that beautiful idea of joy. And so we want to make much of that. You'll see those, that word rejoice pop up a couple times again this week, and it's just all throughout this text. Here's our now what statement for this week. It's in your notes and on the screens. Live out your partnership with God with responses of unity, purity, and faithful sacrifice. Let's see what that's all about. Number one in your notes, God's calling on your life has always been based on a partnership. God's calling on your life has always been based on a partnership. There is something about what God is going to do and something that he calls upon you to do, and I want to explore that a little bit with you. We're in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. It says, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now, how, now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. All right, we, we have seen this again and again. Last week we saw the word twice, we see it today. We, whenever we see the, in the Bible the word therefore, we need to ask, What's it there for? And what we saw last week is just some powerful, like I think the whole book of Philippians kind of uses this hinge point of the beginning of chapter two of this amazing poem about the way that Jesus willingly humiliated himself and as a result will be eternally exalted. And so we saw that beautiful poem in Philippians chapter two. Those are the last words that we read, and now we come into this passage. So therefore, as a result of how Jesus has set for you, remember it said your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So as we've seen Jesus's attitude, therefore, these words now are what comes next. The idea and what he talks about is that he mentions, remember we've said that Philippians reads a lot like this really beautiful thank you letter. Paul thanking them for a lot of things, and in this case, thanking them for their obedience, affirming them, like, hey, when I was with you, 
you recognize this idea of how important it was to put your life in alignment with God's design, I want to say, yay, God, for that. Great job. But now that I'm apart from you, I'm in jail writing a letter to you. Make sure that you continue that long-distance obedience because it's not so much you're doing it for me. You're obviously doing it as unto the Father. And then he calls them, he says, to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. First off, that word to work out, the Greek word, it means literally to work down to an end point, to an exact definite conclusion. So there's a thoroughness to it. It's not like work out in the gym and hope you might see some results. Many of us would say, yeah, we're still waiting. I am too. But it work out towards an end where there really is a definite end point. Now, this is the part I was telling you about today. When I have read this passage before, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it, it has been a curveball to me related to the rest of what Paul writes. And it's one of those problematic passages because here's, and here's, let me maybe make the issue clear so you can see what my angst has been. Maybe you have no angst at all, which is awesome, but I have angst. And, and it's because of this, it's even what we talked about last week. We said last week that religion is a stench in the nostrils of God because it is us trying to work out, trying to earn, trying to merit some sort of way of being acceptable to God when God says you can't do that because you are so far removed and I can't stand sin. So there's no amount, even in the midst of your best efforts of do-gooding, there's no amount to outweigh the scales of the problem that you have. You were born a sinner and you behave like one. That's a problem and there's this major rift and the only way to get there is what God has already done through his son. That's the gospel. That's what I see all throughout the New Testament. Then I come to this passage and I go, so, so try harder. And I go, Bruh. That's a confusing passage to me. What do I do with that? And I will say, when we read it in our English language, our translation, I think it presents an, an, an opportunity to go, I don't know what to do with this, but watch this. If you would have been the original recipient of this letter, the church at Philippi in the Greek language, here's how you would have read that passage. You all work out collectively your salvation or your well-being. That you is a plural. That's a hard thing for us in our English language, right? Every other case, it's obvious, I and we, first person but singular and plural. Him and they, first person and plural, or third person singular and then plural. But you, in our English language, unless you're from Texas, <laughs> unless you do y'all, we miss it, and we read right over the top of it, and we can read it. By the way, that's part of our Western culture. We're very individualistic. Everything we read, we think is always and only just about us. This passage is saying, you all work out your salvation. Oh, now that's really interesting. So here's my friend Adam. Adam didn't know I was going to come down and say hi to him. Hey, Adam. Good to see you, bro. Morning. Morning. Um, so here's my good friend Adam. So... If this passage is saying, if, if I've understood it as that my salvation is something that I have to keep trying harder to be gooder, in and of itself, we've said that seems relatively inconsistent with the by grace through faith understanding of the gospel, but then all the more, 
If that concept is, well, Adam, you and I have to work out our salvation, this idea of, of being good enough to God, then that's all kinds of a mess. Because now Adam's responsible for me and I'm responsible for him to be ultimately right with God. Boy, you, you and, and now just add in your mind anyone like Adam, well, like Adam, you're a great guy, Adam, but add in your mind anyone in your life and say, now it's your responsibility, and you start going, that's even harder than trying by myself. Here's what I think this passage is saying. Remember the context, remember the flow, everything we've seen since the beginning of chapter, well, I even go back into chapter one. And this, by the way, is the beauty of studying a book in its flow, and always being easy to recall its context. Paul has been talking to you all this whole time. He's been talking about their collective problem. He said, you're facing persecution from the outside. I know that's challenging because I face persecution in Philippi for Jesus too. Then he switches gears in chapter two and says, maybe the worst enemy is not them, it's you. You're living with division, you're living with challenge, you're backbiting on each other, you're doing things out of your own selfish ambition and vain conceit. Instead, take the attitude of Christ. We're continuing that line of thinking and we haven't come to some point where now it's just you individually, it's y'all. You all need to continue to put in the degree a faithful effort to work together. That word salvation can easily also be translated as well-being, harmony. You all need to keep at it. You all need to keep making a priority the fact that you're working off the same page, the fact that you're protecting the unity that is in Christ. I remember hearing someone say this one time, it was powerful, that as a church, we don't try to strive to find unity. We already have it because Jesus is at the center and his spirit indwells us. So as a result, we have to preserve the unity, not try to search for it. It's already there. That's what I believe this passage is saying. You all continue to stay at it to keep working out this, this idea of harmony, of collective well-being that you're a unit, you're not. This actually, this is a, a huge thing to read this passage as though it's only about you working out your salvation completely misses the point because it's saying we as a congregation, we as the people of God, we as a local church need to continue to work together, preserving our unity. And we're gonna see in this passage how important that is to the Father. He reminds them to have a posture that they ought to have of fear and trembling. And he's saying this because, of, remember we said a couple weeks ago, Paul's taking a very fatherly approach to this group of people. He loves them. He actually helped give birth to the church in Philippi, very hands-on in his relationships there. And so he's saying to them, there is a father that you are accountable to way more interesting, way more vast, way more awesome the word awe, causing us to be in awe than I ever can be. His name is God the Father. So keep working at this unity as his kids with fear and trembling, knowing he's the one you give account to. We see this next phrase that describes a really powerful, it's kind of our first point, this partnership between them, the church at Philippi, and their heavenly father, and how they're going to move forward as they work out their collective well-being. 
It says God's role is that, he, that they will be able to work in them to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Look in your notes. I want to remind you that the God of the Bible has consistently demonstrated that he longs to engage his people in partnerships where he chooses to oblige himself as he calls upon them to make a commitment to him in return. God need not do this. He's not bound to make any kind of commitment to anyone, but he chooses to do so. But every time we see one of those partnerships, one of those commitments, one of those covenants, there's always a side for his people. There's always something for them to be held accountable and responsible to as well. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Before the fall, this is an interesting idea. Some of us don't know this. In Genesis chapter 2, when God creates man and woman, puts them in the garden, look what the Bible says, Genesis 2, 15. The Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. That's new information for some of us because some of us thought that work was a result of the fall. All Adam had to do before sin entered the world was sit on his lazy boy and just kind of watch creation go by. And some of us have that view of heaven. It will be awesome. There will be this incredibly gold-plated, diamond-encrusted lazy boy chair for me, and I will sit through eternity. Can I just tell you that's never been in the mind of God. God created Adam, put him in charge as a steward, a manager of the garden. Work is something in the Bible before the fall ever happened. After the fall, we have workaholics. After the fall, we have people who are defined by their job, by their career. Pre-fall, work was a godly ambition. And there is an incredibly important theology of work that we will spend some time eventually talking about how important it is. What does the Bible say in Colossians? Do everything. Everything is unto the Lord, not unto men. It's him that you're serving. So, so this idea, that was the first of one of these partnerships is God saying, I have a role for you. I'm going to establish this garden, but I'm going to give you a job within it to tend and to take care of that which I put together. That wouldn't be the end. After the fall, God's gonna start over with a flood. And he doesn't say to Noah, Noah, here's the boat I've made for you and your family. Hop in, and now I'm gonna pour down rain. He says, build a boat according to these dimensions. There's a partnership. God giving every resource Noah needs and three strapping strong sons and saying, and by the way, I'm going to do this, but I need you to do your part too. I have a role for you. Are those parts co-equal? Absolutely not. Noah was a mere human like you and I. Adam, a mere human like you and I. Nothing on comparison. There's no 50-50 relationship with God, but there's always an inclusion to be involved. Think of it this way. Think of the times when your kids maybe right now are little or were little. And remember the time when your daughter wanted to help with some kind of chore around the house. In a moment of clarity, you said sure. Because otherwise it's just I could get that done so much faster, so much better than she can at three. But in a moment of clarity, you understood the power of a little person having a role, having some way they could contribute. 
And so you got down with her and and you did some kind of chore in the house together and you did have to go back and redo it. It did take you longer, but you saw the value of demonstrating you can do this and I want you to be involved. I want you to have a role in what goes on in our home. God is saying the same thing. God did not teleport Abram to the land that he had promised him, but he told him, pick up your family and start walking and I'll tell you where to go. God had a design, Abram needed to keep putting one foot in front of the next. That was the commitment, that was the relationship. Later on, God would say to Abram and to Sarai, I am going to give you a son, and it's through him that this promise is going to come. Nations are going to come from him. They are very, very old when they receive this promise, and they had to do something in order to have a son. You're doing the math. (laughs) She did not become pregnant as Mary did by some unique, God put this child in her womb. There is always a commitment that God is asking us to engage. They would have this son and from Isaac would literally come the nations. Two million people ultimately in bondage in Egypt when God called upon Moses in a partnership. I will do everything that's needed to do, Moses. I just need you to show up. And you tell Pharaoh how it is. You tell Pharaoh to let them go. I will take care of the rest, and the rest is history. That nation comes out of Egypt, former slaves, but into what? And it's at the base of Mount Sinai. When God makes a covenant, not just with individuals, but with a people, with a nation of Israel. And he says to them, I will be your God and you will be my people. And this, watch this, this is his commitment to them, their commitment. This is how you'll live. You'll love me with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Here's the wild thing about God. As he was literally carving those words or giving those words to Moses, he absolutely was aware. Moses actually would write down, when you fail Yahweh. There there was no misunderstanding of God looking down and his people doing all kinds of crazy disobedient things and going, how did that happen? He told them in advance, when you fail, this will happen. But note, I will always be faithful to my end of the covenant, and I will always create this opportunity for you to be right with me. God calling his people into partnership. As his people would continue to disobey him, he would send judges. Judges who would come, and they would be called to do amazing things and lead amazing victories, but they were called to do things as God provided the win. It would be later on that God would provide a king, the second king of Israel, and to David, God said, I will establish your kingdom forever, and through you, the long-awaited Messiah, all the way back to Genesis 3, the one who would stomp the head of the snake, I'm promising him through you. So we see again and again partnerships, commitments, covenants that God is making, and he makes one to you today. 
If you have not already responded to the invitation because Messiah did come, his name is Jesus Christ, he accomplished everything God had for him to do, and as a result made a way for you to be right with him through the cross and through the empty tomb. That's your responsibility. He's done everything he needs to do for you to be right with him. And there's no set of rule keeping. There's no set of do-gooding. It's simply, I admit I'm a sinner. I believe he's the only savior available and I choose to follow him with my life. That's your next step. That's your response and commitment to him. This has been the nature of God from the beginning and it continues to be the way he calls out to us still today. This God of partnerships, of callings, he's the one who's actually now also going to say, and I'm going to give you what you need in order to do this. Look at this passage. It all begins with God. He works in you. By the way, he works in y'all. Not you singular, you plural. He works in you all. The word work here, energeo, it means to energize. It means working in a situation which brings someone from one stage, one point, to somewhere else. That's a powerful idea. God is at work within us with the goal of growth, with the goal of moving us forward. I hope you know this at Trinity Church. On our walk with the Lord, whether we are brand new in our faith, whether we've been following Jesus for decades, there is always a next That should not be overwhelming. It should simply be, God, there's always area of growth that you want to keep working in my life, helping me become more like the son you sent to save us. And the great news is, is he's giving us the power and the strength. He works in us. And look at to what end, to will and to act. As in all the examples we looked at a minute ago, God is the initiator He is at work within us corporately to produce these two key elements to affect our wills, our want-tos, as well as to provide us the strength and the power to act or to work. I want to say this is a very powerful concept to me. We all have kind of our hobby horse things that we get real excited about. This is what I get passionate about. I think for, I'll tell you my story, for a long time, No one ever, I don't think ever just kind of point blank told me this, but this is what I picked up on in the churches I grew up in. God did this amazing thing in sending his son to make a way for you to be right with him. I heard the gospel since I was a child, and I heard it clearly, like meaning not littered with a bunch of other things. It was clear, but watch this. God did all the work providing you a way to be right with him, but now that you're in him, it's your job to become like Jesus. That is this underlying tone I heard all the time. Now that God has saved you through Jesus, he did all that work, all you have to do is respond. Now it's your job to work out the rest and just try harder. For whatever reason, that's the message I walked away with from my churches. I wanna make sure that's not the message you walk away with. Because did you hear, not only does this passage, it doesn't reflect, reflect what we see in the New Testament about the engaging power of the Spirit of God that lives in you, but I think using that, though not using those words, that idea, it is God who works in you. So God not only is responsible to provide the way for you to be saved, he's responsible to do the work within you to change and transform you. God is at work. There is a responsibility we have, but don't ever think that it's out of your flesh. If you just try harder, you're somehow going to become more like his son. God is the source of the strength you need. Look in your notes. 
as God initiates, you respond. That is an axiom I'd love for you just to lean into. As God initiates, you respond. As God leads, you follow, as there is indeed a role for you to play in your partnership with God. Now, some who would say today, Todd, so in this goal, if this whole idea, this context of this passage is unity in the body, like how do we not have divisions and backbiting and, and all these different things, how, how is it going to happen? Is it going to be this powerful work of God? He's just going to do this great thing in it, or is it up to us? And the simplest answer I have for you is yes. Yes. Look at the definition of compatibilism. I love this. This is from D.A. Carson. He puts it succinctly. He said this, God is absolutely sovereign, but his sovereignty never functions in scripture to reduce human responsibility. God is absolutely in control and will get done what he wants to do. He's very clear in scripture, but never does so in a way that human beings aren't still responsible for how they respond to him. But watch this. Human beings are responsible creatures. That is, they choose, they believe, they disobey, they respond, and there is a moral significance in their choices. But human responsibility never functions in scripture to diminish God's sovereignty or to make God absolutely contingent. That to me is the best way I have to frame verses like we've looked at today. God works in you to will and to act. It is God and it is us. Number two in your notes, grumbling and arguing are parts of the old you, not the new you. Grumbling and arguing are parts of the old you, not the new you. Philippians 2, 14. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad, and there it is again, and rejoice with me. The Greek word for grumbling means what you think it means, muttering or murmuring, that kind of talking under your breath, right? That whole thing. Do everything without that. The Greek word for arguing is pretty straightforward, reasoning or disputing that is self-based. Winning the argument, I want to win, okay? Really obvious stuff that we know. So here's the interesting thing. This started as a biblical imperative. It's, it's again, this imperative verb, do everything without. So it actually starts kind of in this weird positive negative thing. Do everything but within the absence of these things. Now, if you're here today and you're a parent, this is a biblical imperative. I cannot fathom why you don't have plastered all over your house. <laughs> do everything without grumbling or arguing. The peace and the harmony that you can't even remember is probably related to those two issues. You guys are really mad at me. You're all looking down right now. <laughs> Jerk. But actually, they have a point. I'm pretty sure it's not just limited to our students or our kids. Is that your response when your boss gives you a deadline that you don't think you can meet, that you're just awesome, unless you say it sarcastically like I do all the time. I wonder if there's grumbling and arguing there. When you get pulled over for a speeding ticket, 
There's no grumbling or arguing within that. Everyone else was speeding, blah, 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 blah. When you have challenges and there's conflicts with your spouse, conflicts with your neighbors, conflicts with people, you, there's no grumbling or arguing there? I have a feeling this is an all-encompassing area of conviction. This is not limited to your kids. It is not limited to your students. Look in the mirror. And I say the same about me. Paul says, and he lays out this huge idea. He doesn't say, when you're together. He doesn't say, when you're at home. He doesn't say, when you're by yourself. That's pretty easy not to grumble or complain when you're by yourself. He says, do everything without. And, and just the load of that probably seems overwhelming to you. I think probably appropriately so. But I want to remind you, again, we're continuing to read this in sequence. We see this, why this is so important to Paul is that so that they might become pure and blameless children of God without finding fault in a warped and crooked generation. The reason why Paul can say, do everything without grumbling and arguing, it's that same God he's calling upon who works in you to act and to, to will and to act according to God's good pleasure. God can call you to something that he empowers you to do. That's the thing I love about scripture. You will not find an imperative verb. You'll not find a command, a, a directive, where he doesn't also supply the resources to accomplish it. God will give you enough. The phrase blameless and pure, it's interesting. That's actually a phrase we've already read in Philippians. Back in Paul's prayer, Philippians 1.10, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That's really cool. He was praying for that in chapter one, that they would be a people collectively who are defined by being pure and blameless ultimately in Christ. And he says that here, this is something you're becoming. Leave that old way of relating poorly to each other back in the dust of who you were because you're called to something so much better, that of becoming blameless and pure. And like we said, blameless, <laughs> blameless and pure. How about blameless and pure? I have not had enough caffeine yet this morning. When you feel like this is maybe God asking too much, remember what we just read. He's partnering with you, working in you that you might collectively will and act according to his purpose. By the way, all those different relationships I identified, none, never once did I say how we treat each other. Remember, that's kind of the context of this whole thing. In your gathering, in this local body, do everything without grumbling and arguing. And that's got a whole new layer of conviction. I didn't write that. Paul didn't. He meant it for us, for a local church. This is important. It's important that we see that, important that we process it, important to know that God will give us the resources to actually live according to that not just to stay in the old habit, the old way of how we lived. It's, no, it's a call to no longer treat each other like we did when we were consumed by the flesh, but now that we've been empowered by God, we can and should treat each other differently. Look in your notes. This is what's true. When you don't live in a way that you formerly did, you will stand out. You will stand out, you'll live in contrast. 
to a warped and crooked generation whose native tongue is grumbling and arguing. If that is not your posture, you will absolutely be someone that shines, like this passage says. Look at, by the way, that is actually, if you'll note in your, your text, that there's quotations around that phrase. It's because it's borrowed from an incredibly powerful song from Moses. The very last words he would say before he, were, he was to walk away and leave this earth and leave his leadership and entrust it to Joshua, these are his last words from Deuteronomy 32. And he says, they are, a, they are corrupt and not his children to their shame. They are a warped and crooked generation. Is this the way you repay the Lord, you foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? Paul's quoting that to say when, because the people of Israel were just absolutely defined by their arguing and complaining all the way through the desert. Paul is saying, that's the old you. Let's be identified and defined by the new you, the new us, the new y'all. Let that be how we live according to this. And look what happens to you when we collectively stop living in a complaining, arguing manner. We shine among them as we hold firmly to the word of life. Not only people in this context, but people in your relational world will take notice of the fact that you deal with conflict differently. One of my favorite parts, we had just an amazing time up at Forest Home for our fall reunion a couple weeks ago, and obviously, as fun as the lake is and everything about it, the baptisms are just so, so awesome and encouraging. And I had the privilege of baptizing Maria, and Maria was really cool in her story as we would talk. Maria said this, she said, you know, it was interesting that as I began to understand who Jesus was, I didn't even realize that it was changing me. But my, my longtime relationship partner and the people in my friend group, they recognized it. And they said to me, Maria, what's going on with you? And she didn't have much of any explanation. She wasn't trying to make a statement. She was just being transformed. And her only obvious answer was, you know what? I'm going to church and I'm responding to this thing of what Jesus has called me to. And I'd love for you to know him too. That, that was just, it was so great reading her testimony. I don't even have words for it except to say God's doing something in me. Would you like to know it too? That's what happens when God is on the move in our lives. People take note. They were seeing God working in her to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Notice that phrase, we don't just shine to shine, but we do so in a way that is contrasting and life-giving to others based on the new life that we have and the life that they too can know. And that's been so fun to watch in Maria's life. That's really one of our core values. Look it up on the screens. Uh, your calling is to influence your world with Jesus. Your calling is to influence your world with Jesus and that's so rich within our mission, but we wanted to make sure it was repeated in our core values. And the interesting thing is, this takes a lot less work than you think it does. It's simply letting the work that God is doing, transforming you, be apparent to the people in your life. And I love Maria's story for that. We said all throughout this passage, we want to commit some words to memory. This is the passage, the part of the passage today we did. We'll put it up on the screen. Let's say it out loud together from Philippians 2, 14. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. 
Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Paul finishes this part of the chapter by simply saying, I am running a race with the goal of serving you, and I'm being poured out like a drink offering. I'm giving everything I have, but I rejoice in seeing what God is doing among you, and I want you to rejoice as well. I want you to recognize the grace of God. Finally today, number three, faithful sacrificial partnership is commendable. Faithful sacrificial partnership is commendable. Philippians 2 verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who, who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out to their own interests, not to those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think that it is necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, Epaphroditus is who brought the letter to Paul, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you in his distress because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not only him only, but on, also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager, sorry, my iPad is being funky, um, to send him so that you may also see him again, you, that you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy, there's that word again, and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give. Paul finishes chapter two with these powerful examples of two young leaders who have led and sacrificed well, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Timothy, I love this phrase, it says that he has served with me like a, like a son in this ministry of the gospel. Served with me as a son. Paul had no children that we're aware of, and so Timothy was not his biological son, but he entered into this apprenticeship. Think of the first century, Jesus became a carpenter. Oh, by the way, Joseph was a carpenter first. He taught the trade to his son. Jesus' some of his first followers, Peter and James, James and John, I'm sorry, sons of Zebedee. Zebedee was a fisherman, so so were James and John. So this idea is that you would learn the trade that your father would have. Paul says, my trade is bringing the gospel to people. Timothy has served well with me like a son. I was just telling our elders the other day, there are few things in this life that give me a greater sense of joy than getting to serve alongside of my wife and my kids. We have been doing that since they were little, my wife and I, since we, even before we were married. And I absolutely love this whole thing of apprenticeship together as a family, training our kids, not just to love Jesus, but also to serve him. He talks also about Epaphroditus, and he says, Epaphroditus gave up so much to bring news of you to me, nearly died in the effort of doing it. And his goal of doing it, by the way, was not just to bring news, but was to bring financial help. Remember, we've seen that. Paul says throughout this letter, he commends them for their financial investment in him and in the gospel. One of the things I'm exciting about building more of a culture at Trinity Church is that of stewardship and generosity. 
I believe there are strains running throughout our body, but not so much from this stage. I've been here three years and have never really focused time on that, and I'm really excited. In the month of November, we're going to do a series on generosity, and I can't wait for that because I think it's well due and needed. But I say to you this, just to plant a seed for that thought coming up, I'd ask you to do this. I've actually put it in your notes so you and I wouldn't forget. This is what I'd ask you to do just to even get ready for that series. I want to challenge you to simply evaluate. I want to challenge you to simply evaluate, take a few moments and consider privately or with your family about how you're giving financially to Trinity Church. I want you to take some time over the course of the next few days just to stop and pause and say, in our financial investment to Trinity, where are we at? Now, I want to say, first of all, I would never ask you to do something that I didn't already ask our leaders to do. I put this in front of our elders and our staff, and I simply, after I talked to them about this, I asked, just sent them an email and said, hey, would you let me know if you're going to do this? I, it, no obligation. I just would like to know. The overwhelming majority of them emailed me back, Todd, we have or we will. So you need to know that from your elders and from your staff, this is a question they've already posed by themselves or together with their family. So it comes to you through that lens. But the other thing is this. Some of you give consistently, obediently, and cheerfully to Trinity Church. I want to say thank you. Others of us give when we have something left over at the end of the month. Others of us are sitting here right now and going, that's a thing? I'm supposed to give financially? I had no idea. And to be fair, if you're relatively new to Trinity, especially, who could blame you? We haven't talked about it. But I want to put this on you to consider we actually began to look at this idea of stewardship this summer. We did our, our parable series. In one week, we focused on the idea that what you might know is the parable of the talents, the parable of the faithful stewards. And I want you to hear someday, well done. Good and faithful steward, meaning like Adam, you're given a stewardship of things to manage. I want you to stand before the Lord and hear him say, well done, because of all of what you've managed, not just maybe your time, not just maybe your gifts, but as well as your resources. But I want us as a church, collectively, to be a church like the church at Philippi, who were commended for the way that they were generous and that they were supporting the needs of Paul and the work all around the world. I'm excited. I want to plant that seed in you today, and we'll look at it in the month of November. Here's our now what idea for this week. As a result of this passage, what should we be about? Live out your partnership with God with responses of unity, purity, and faithful sacrifice. Let me pray. Father, we come before you today uh, grateful for the word of God, grateful for the way that it bubbles to the top. Some of the things that we know we struggle with, we struggle with our unity, we struggle with working well together, we struggle with a collective sense of responsibility of how, how God, are we going to preserve the unity you've given us through your spirit? Thank you for what we've seen today, that you don't just expect us to try harder, but you're at work within us. You give us a mandate, but you give us the resources to accomplish that. And this week, would we, in our relationships with one another, in our relationships even in our community, would we be a people who don't live with complaining and grumbling and arguing, 
but instead, God, would we want to preserve the unity that we have through the bond of the Spirit? If you're here today and you would say, Todd, I, I don't know what it is to know that indwelling power of God. I don't know what it is to have this transformation to be more like Jesus because I've never initiated. Though God has put to me a responsibility, I've never responded to it. I have great news to you for you because you can do that right now. By A, admitting that you're a sinner who needs a savior. You have lived life on your terms, not on God's. And as a result, there's a significant problem in the relationship. You are a part of the human race. We all have the same problem. Be believe. Believe that Jesus came and lived a sinless life. Believe that he died a sacrificial death. Believe that he was raised supernaturally on the third day. See is choose. Choose to say, Jesus, I recognize that I cannot be good enough, I cannot be religious enough to be right with you, so I lean into, I put my weight, my confidence in what you did for me. I choose to trust Jesus for my salvation and I want to walk with you, becoming more like him. That is your response, your next step to that commitment that God puts in front of you today and my prayer is that you'd respond. Father, we love you, thank you so much for the joy you give us that cannot be shaken or taken away. Help us live in light of it this week. And we pray in Jesus' great name, amen.